Hey, this is Michael Gilbert from Flossum and Jetsum, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another dose of Focus on Metal. So, uh, before we get into this week's episode, just want to uh, let you know that if you missed the last episode, we had a great talk with Jeff Pilson, all about stuff going on with just about every damn thing that he's doing, uh, with the notable exception of Dawkins. I guess that's uh, kind of been fairly well covered lately on social media, so... Why bother with that one? So if you missed that, go up to focusonmetalpod.com and check out episode 587. But this week, my uh, old bandmate and uh, former original Focus on Metal partner, Jay, is back on board to do a little bit of a uh, Metallica discussion. Over the last few weeks, we've been tossing back and forth topics, and Jay just happened to ask about you know discussing... Metallica bassist and how they relate to the eras of the band and it was kind of a loose concept that we as we talk molded it into something so definitely a longer episode this week to make up for the short episode last week I guess so knowing it's a long discussion why don't we get into it all right focus on metal listeners uh reaching back into the uh the old focus on classic metal ethos. And uh, Jay had hit me up a little while ago about uh, discussion about Metallica bassists, their, their influences and, and all that good stuff. So on the line once again is Jay. How you doing, man? Hey, doing good. Uh, nice to be talking about this one. I know it's one that we, you know, I mentioned to you in the past. And, uh, you know, I don't think people may even realize how many bassists have actually been in Metallica. So yeah. it'll be Thanks. a good topic. <laughs> that's true um and it's uh it's it's interesting too because you know this is i mean i'm i come at this a little bit as a you know having played bass for a long time as well and, and you know you've played guitar and been a long time metallica fan and so i think there's some kind of you know how you view their contributions and and what you got out of them and stuff probably differs a little bit between the two of us. So it's uh, it's always an interesting chat. And usually bassists don't ever get much love, anyways. If you ever see any of the Death Clock cartoons, you know that the person who gets the shit end of the stick is the bass player. So uh, so it's cool to be talking about this one. Right. It's all the bassists always get shit on. <laughs> <laughs> probably one of the reasons why I switched to rhythm. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, it's, I mean, of course, there's, I guess you could say there were five bass players in, in Metallica from the kind of the official run, right? Two of them, yep. well, at least one of them really isn't on record unless you get some early, you know, bootlegs. And then, obviously, the other one that no one ever kind of thinks of is, hey, a ba- well, he was in Metallica as a bass player. A semi-official, of course, was Bob Rock. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much we can talk about what Ron McGovney brought to the table, especially not from a official recorded studio thing. But uh, I think probably the the impetus of of the guys you really wanted to talk more about is, of course, Cliff Burton and uh, and Jason and the current bass player Rob Trujillo. Of course, it's actually funny because uh, you know. My count was five as well, and I figured you might pull one out of your ass somewhere that I never heard about that did a tour with them or something, you know. But so I'm glad your count is the same as mine. Yeah, I'm not going to pull like a yeah. I don't I don't think there's like a John Marshall version in the bass player range for that. But uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I get five as well, and I had I had actually forgotten about the whole uh, Bob deal with uh with saint anger and and it's interesting because yes. you know some of that stuff when you hear that stuff live with rob on bass instead it actually does have a much better feel to it so it's uh that's kind of interesting for that that aspect mm-hmm. honestly that i gotta say that one album saint anger um I haven't listened to it all the way through, only because I just can't. It's just, to me, it is absolutely positively the worst thrash metal album ever made by any band at that level. It is, it was just that bad for me. So, you know, it's probably a 
few people out there probably going, oh my God, it's great, the guy's a jerk. But you know, hey, no, I'm sorry, just for me, it's, that album just didn't work at all. <laughs> yeah, I think... So, so I can't speak much about his playing on other than everything that sounded like it was, you know, drop tune as far as it can possibly go in a muddled mess. That's all I heard when I heard that album. Yeah, I, I think... The uh, like I said, when you listen to the to the stuff that was done live rather than the recorded stuff, you wish the album had that feel to it and not what it did. And of course, you know, the other thing, too, and you probably the same for you is that, you know, first exposure to St. Anger is also kind of locked in with the documentary and all that. So you, you also get this whole other like what the fuck vibe that adds to that. And uh, I think that kind of doesn't play well for the album either. We jump, we're jumping ahead to the middle here, so um, we're talking about him. But, well, this is uh, classic focus on metal right here. We like, you know. You know a rabbit hole, then we'll have to kind of rewind it a bit. But yeah, you're right. Uh, actually, that documentary, I didn't watch that until years later, and I didn't mind that as much, to be honest. Ah, but, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but it was just you know, that, that wasn't hand-in-hand hand for me, so to speak. Gotcha. Um, you know, I was actually just joking at that point. I mean, when a band takes that long to make an album, it annoys the piss out of me anyway. They kind of, Metallica kind of lost me between Metallica and Load, the Black Album and Load. Five years, you know, it was like, who took so long? And by the time they, when Jason left and they, you know, of course, you know, got Rob or whatever, I didn't know who was any basis at that point. But when they were doing um, St. Anger, you know, I actually joked, I said, this band can just make an album of them farting and burping those sell million copies. And I mean, I wasn't that far off, you know, uh, from that thought when they actually came out and I actually was listening to what came out. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> they sold a million copies before we went into shelves and it sounds like this, you know, but uh, that's just that's just me. I mean, it's just, for me, their entire catalog, if you take it, that's the one thing that just doesn't sound like anything else, you know, it's just the one thing that's that much off from yeah. the catalog. Yeah. So why don't we, I'll take that cue from you. We'll we'll, we'll roll it back to to Cliff Burton, you know, the, the right. probably the we'll most beloved back. bassist of the band. No, you got to go one more back. you go to Rod McGovney because we got to talk about how bassists get shit on. So <laughs> he got shit on big time. He did. did. Demo, whatever, got kind of kicked out of the band, whatever. So, you know, fast forward to Kill Em All and now bang, now you get Cliff on, on board. All right, so now we got that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so my first my first experience with Metallica was actually Ride the Lightning. Um, okay. You know, so I, I didn't, I mean, you know, I'm a couple years younger than you, so I didn't really even know Kill 'Em All was out there. I was getting into metal, was, you know, going from, like, bands like Kiss to, like, heavy metal bands or thrash metal bands, and Metallica was one of the first, and get a copy of Ride the Lightning, and that was fantastic. And, of course, I backfilled it right away with Kill Em All when I could find it. When I eventually found it, it was a re-release or something with the two extra songs on it. But, you know, I mean, oh, God, Cliff Burton's bass playing was just ridiculous for that, that era. You know, I mean, it was just on a metal album, especially, and that was recorded. I loved it. Yeah, I think what's interesting with Cliff is that he he had so many influences outside of metal and I think that that was probably, to me anyways, was probably one of his key contributions to the growth of the band is that he was absolutely unafraid of pulling from any musical style, even classical, and, and bringing that stuff in and applying it tastefully to what they were doing, uh, whether it was a bass part, whether it was a guitar part, whatever it was. I think that that's a huge part of of what Cliff did. And then the other thing is that he was uh, a guy who played with his fingers as well and, and not a pick. And although a lot of them, you know, metal bands, they, they want to have that like really driving bass and stuff. And so bass players tend to go over with a pick as well to do that. But Jason was one of these guys that was able to play with his fingers and be really eloquent with it. And, you know, like even that kind of that geezer Butler style and stuff and, little jazz things in there and, and being unafraid of pulling in some effects and stuff as well. And I, I think though, to me, his biggest thing is the fact that he could take influences outside of metal and start to insert them into what the other guys knew, because, you know, James is pretty much, you know, he knew metal, you know, new wave of British heavy metal and around the scene, Lars, same thing, you know, some Deep Purple, some Shanker, but again, not like completely well-versed in any style outside of that. And along comes Cliff with just this encyclopedic knowledge of all kinds of shit. 
You know, I think you've got to reverse uh, time in, in general here. So anybody listening to the show right now, of course, has the full catalog of Metallica and they're whatever age they are between, you know, 20 to 60 or whatever, you know. So they came into the band at whatever point in their life they did that. You know, an album was coming out, and it could have been 2005. Someone was probably turning 25. You and I, we, we were there at the beginning, you know, and the beginning also means that heavy metal was the beginning also. You know, so the whole the whole genre wasn't really uh, pinned down like it is now. Not as a formula. Now things go a certain way. Back then, it was a total free-for-all, and bands were being signed left and right because they were fast, hmm. you know. Uh, and so that all being said, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Lars and James, they were really big into the, you know, uh, new album stuff, and and you had Cliff playing with his fingers, like you mentioned, and he also used a lot of distortion and, like, pedal kind of effects on his on his bass, which is really cool. It wasn't just a straightforward, you know, I'm going to play bass, really boring kind of thing. I mean, the guy, the guy, <laughs> the guy was, uh, how do you even put it, he was a shredder on bass, you know, and at that time, that was not normal or heard of, really, either that I can recall. So just everything snapped them. They were an angry young men, you know, getting a record deal, twenty years old, twenty-two years old, and they were they were just flying high. So if you could add that energy and that youthfulness to the first couple albums, especially with Metallica, you know, how the being young and just that excitement that must have been going through them making albums, you know, sure, wasn't sure. they weren't jaded yet. Yeah, know, and, and Cliff was also jaded. just like a total free spirit. He just didn't give a shit. He wasn't going to go along with anything he didn't feel like doing. Uh, he didn't try to, you know, adapt to fit in or it's, it was kind of like either you liked what he did and how he was or, or fuck you. And that, I mean, that comes right down to, you know, who the hell in metal at that point was wearing bell bottoms. I mean, only one person, yeah. Cliff Burton. Yep. 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 That's uh, he was, uh, he didn't fit the, the look overall, you know, I mean, the traditional look, I should say. He had his own look, which was metal, but definitely didn't fit that. What was going on, traditional, you know, leather jacket type bands kind of thing that was going on back then. <laughs> definitely not. No. And I think that, you know, most of the time when you talk about bass players in Metallica and stuff, you know, almost everybody just instantly goes back to Cliff. I think even no matter how, when they kind of dropped in in there. And, and you know, the fact is, is that, yeah, he was the bass player during what everybody would consider to be that seminal time in Metallica. But his tenure was like, what, four years? Which, you know, compared to the, the guys that followed him, you know, incredibly short time. But I, I think also, I always feel like a lot of the the albums, and, and more so the Ride and, and Master, are... Uh, heavily, heavily influenced by Cliff, and they would not have been the same albums without him. I think that he brought a little to kill them all, and the same with with Kirk. But you know, those ones had kind of already been done live, and there was uh, kind of a, a set thing that was done, an expectation of those. Ride was a clean slate, Master was a clean slate, and you know. When you start to talk about about justice, I think there's some cliffisms on there, but I think that's also where you, to me, anyways, where you see or it really becomes apparent how important Cliff was to the overall sound of Metallica because Justice becomes this album of well, how many more parts can we put into a song? Where I, again, my opinion, if Cliff had been alive, he would have said no, stop that. That's you. We don't want to do that. He, I think he would have reined a lot of things in, and you would have had a different album. I think some of the songs that are on there would be on there uh, that he you know, had hands in doing, but I think it would have been a different-sounding album. And again, like I said, to me, I think you really, when you listen to Injustice, you really see, just from a song structure's, the influence that Cliff had, not even the whole, you know, where's the bass on justice. It just, I'm talking just songs and structure and sonics and all of that. All right. So let's, let's rewind a couple of things. You un unboxed a whole lot there. So, um, you know, going, going to the first album, the, the um, kill them all album, mm. you know, clearly that was, that was a Dave Mustaine album. From my, my opinion. I mean, <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. It was heavily, it was heavily influenced by his riffing and his speed and just, his playing style is all over that album. Mm -hmm. You know, granted, he wasn't 
eventually on that album. But, you know, so like you said, he, he had, the influence was different in that first album. Second album, by the way, Mustaine still had influence on a couple of songs. Yep. He had writing credits on a couple, but, you know, there's a lot of Burton on there, a lot of Burton writing credits, and a lot of his sounds and just how he, the structure, exactly what you said. And that, to me, Ride the Lightning is where they kind of gelled as that four-piece band, those four guys kind yep. of gelled as, at that band. Then you go to Master Puppet, a little different animal, um, you know, considered probably some of their best work. And although I, I mean, I love that album when it came out and still do, um, you know, obviously they, they hit a different level um, uh, of sound. They hit a different level of success with it, uh, a broader audience. And of course the accident happens, right? Of course, you know, Cliff had heavy writing on that and all that kind of stuff too. And his presence was well known, but then the bus accident, and boom, now we fast forward a bit, right? So now they're looking for a bassist, and Jason Newstead, who, by the way, doesn't suck, he, you know, came from Flotsam and Jetsam, and he listened to their first couple albums that he was on, part of the first album he was on, of course, writing credits for the second album. Yeah. I mean, he didn't yeah. suck. He and, was, and a lot of us thought that, you know, we would not hear from Flotsam again after Jason left. I mean, they're still around today, exactly. but initially yeah. everybody thought, oh, that's the, that's the death knell for Flotsam, which wasn't the case, but yeah, yeah I mean, he was... He was not, you know, a shitty guy for as far as playing bass. Right, so that gets us to that point between Master and Injustice for All. I don't know where the disconnect happened, because they could have easily plugged Jason in, had him turn up his amp the way he normally would, you know, be and sound and play, and just gel into the band, and he wouldn't have been Cliff, he would have been Jason, and things, I think, would have been fine. But I think what was happening there, too, was with the transition of CDs coming in. He went from that, you know, album of being, what, 34 minutes, 38 minutes, whatever the album was, and all of a sudden, boom, you have the capability of 80 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think that played, that, is, that has played part of all music ever since. Um, in the case of metal albums, you know, 40 minutes of listening to someone scream and, you know, the solos and everything else. I mean, it, it gets, I won't say it gets old, but, you know, an, an end, making songs, having a definitive end at some point and condensing it, it makes you want more. When you start stretching it out and, like you said, adding parts and just, to me, it's like a cut and paste, you know, like, hey, let's add a few more parts here and, hey, let's just paste this in. And I did like Injustice for All. I thought it was good. Um, it wasn't fantastic. I was a tiny bit disappointed, but... And overall, it was still an okay album from my perspective. And you're right, I did hear the influences still there, but, you know, clearly Jason was uh, was not given the, the ability to, to run free like he should have been. It was yeah. just my thought on that. Yeah. And I, I still, th I just think still when you, you listen to the structure of a lot of those songs on Injustice, it's just... What are you guys trying to do? Get all of a sudden progressive, you know, where you had a little bit of a leaning to that with some of Master, and, and it's like, now nah, you've, you've just gone too far. And I think that's where, to me, again, where Cliff would have just kind of called bullshit on some of that stuff and, and reined it in, and it would have been a little bit more concise and probably more memorable overall. You know, you, again, we get a, you got to kind of go back and, and is a, you know, put yourself back in 1986 to 87 to 88, those three years. That's when things really, really, really exploded in the metal scene. I mean, mm -hmm. 87 was a whole, 86, 87 were, I mean, just metal bands are popping up a dime a dozen in every corner. I mean, it was just ridiculous how many were popping in there. So, you know, Metallica is now saying, hey, we got to compete with this and, you know, record, uh, label mates or, you know, or different labels doing different things. And of course, bands like Queensryche were, were, you know, pretty prominent at that point and very technical and getting some success. So I think they, I think they just looked at the whole picture. I don't think it was definitively, definitively Cliff, you know, passing that made this change. I think it was the whole landscape of, of music in general and, and their desire to, you know, succeed even more and have greater, you know, which they did, by the way, the song one, obviously, you know, put them on the map yep. uh, differently, differently, I should say, on the map uh, at that point. So I don't know. I, I'm not so sure it was definitively that Jason came in that it all happened. I think it was just a pile of shit that all happened at the same time that kind of put that situation together. Yeah, I mean, you might have a point with some of that. I, I would still argue that I think if Cliff had, had still been alive at that point and it came to that song one, I think he would have been no fucking way are we making a video for this song. I, I honestly don't know because... You know, I don't know if the video is a function of the band not having money and couldn't do it, or just no popularity, or the record label didn't invest in them. I really don't know what what's involved with making a video back then. But clearly, somebody put some pony some money up and said, you know, hey, we're gonna do this. We're gonna push it to the next level, kind of thing. I'm not sure 
how aware that came from. And who knows? I mean, maybe he would have bowed down. Maybe they would have picked a different song to do it with. But, um, you know, one was a, a decent song to do it. It kind of had the slow parts, the fast parts, the solo parts, the longer a story that people can kind of relate to, you know, being based off of the, with the book or something or the movie. Yep. And a few Metallica fact buffs that is uh, based upon, of course, Johnny Got His Gun, which was a, actually a story written back in 1931. But the little video or movie clips that are in that one video are from the 1971 movie release. You know, so I, I think the, the parts were there to to do something. I'm just, I just don't know. I mean, honestly, I wish Cliff was there because I think, I think that album would have been that much better, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, yeah, I definitely think that it would have just been a much, much better album. You know, if I were to, to kind of rate kind of how how i prefer the the pre uh self-titled albums and i you know i would say that uh you know it's it's ride it's master it's kill them all and then it's justice for that's just kind of how my preference has been and when i go to to grab one of those early ones that tends to be where i i lean towards as well are you ready for this i mean i'll even uh, yeah just at the bottom for you just as the bottom for me too, but I'll still put the 598 EP even above that. Um, I know it's an EP, but still, I mean, it was something they did, you know, mm-hmm. and I would still even put that as being something I found more successful. And by the way, it was done quickly. It was done, you know, what, like five days or something. They just kind of loaded their gear in, made the songs, and that was the end of it. It didn't, wasn't this big production, and quite honestly, it sounded okay, you know. Yeah. So, so it just goes to show you don't have to have this massive production of 20 days to load the drums into the building, never mind play, you know, um, as some stories have gone over the years. But, yeah, Injustice is the low end for me of all that as well. Yeah, just it's, uh, yeah, I, I still just think that that's, to me, that is what, that album really showed the importance of Cliff Burton beyond just being that, you know, that bass player. And, and at that point, too, when you, you know, you, he was one of those guys that if you were a bass player up until then, you didn't really have a lot of folks that you would look towards unless you started to look at people like Chris Squire and stuff that really weren't metal, but you were looking at these guys that, that were technically adept or, uh, you know, like a Getty Lee or something. And as far as somebody who's like a, a, from metal, I think Cliff was one of the first ones from kind of that, you know, that new generation of metal that bass players could look at and go, fuck yeah, like I want to play like that guy. That's that's obviously you know very true. I mean, people look up at him as as the the benchmark to try to try to hit. You know, as a bass player, I think for, for metal. But you know, going back to Injustice for All, um, we talk about bassists in general and how Cliff was missing from that album. Well, you know what? Jason was missing from that album. I mean, it's like no, like where was he on that album? It's like they'd even like put him in the mix. <laughs> you know, so aside from anything else, we can't even even how effective he was or wasn't on that album because he kind of wasn't even in the mix. Yeah, and it's, you know, even with the, I've got the large box set of Injustice that they did, really well done. All their all the box sets they did were just probably some of the best box sets I've ever spent money on. But, you know, part of my thing with Injustice was, that you know, a lot of talk about having a lot of demos and things where Jason's playing would be more apparent and stuff and and even through any of that stuff i'm i just don't really hear it on there unfortunately i've heard some youtube videos of you know fans have just added the bass in or whatever and quite honestly it does add some punch to the songs and you know probably wasn't jason playing it's probably just some random person doing it but Mm. um you know it didn't make the whole album have a different feel to me and and granted, that's YouTube, so the quality is bad to begin with, and it even sounded better. So, um, you know, the, there should have been some hope there, and, yeah. you know, it would be kind of cool if they actually remixed the whole damn thing and actually put the bass parts in. Maybe maybe for the 40th anniversary they'll do that, you know, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I, w- I was really hoping with the box set that there'd be something that would be like, you know, like the holy grail that would pull it all together for me. But, uh, yeah, it just, it still wasn't there. Well, for so for anybody that's listening to this podcast that wasn't familiar with Jason you know, Newstead before Metallica, you know, just whatever reason you didn't catch that, he came from a band called Flotsam and Jetsam. And their first album was in 1986 called Doomsday for the Deceiver. Go get it, period. That's all I'm going to say. Great album. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, so, you know, he comes in into Metallica. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, I think he tried to bring enthusiasm and energy and 
he still, I, you know, and even even you know James and Lars will admit readily now that yeah they they haze the shit out of that guy. They they took his grief out on him, and and he still, I mean, he hung in there for uh, for quite a while. I mean, that he was you know what fifteen years he he was. The bass player from uh, like eighty six to to two thousand one before he finally said, you know, I fucking had enough. But through all that, I mean, he tried to be enthusiastic. He tried to fit in, and he's a, you know a different kind of player as well. He's a, a guy with a with playing with a pick, and you know a little different way that the bass hangs on him, and you know using different basses and stuff, and more straight ahead in regard to amplification and stuff. But uh, I think still, I mean, he. I think he came in in a shitty time, and in I think for for fifteen years he tried his best to uh, to try to try to keep some of his roots in place as much as he could. But I think overall, I think when you start to talk about bassist, I think Jason from the for the Metallica faithful, I think Jason is the one that usually is more likely to get the finger than Cliff or Rob. Yeah, uh, it's unfortunate. Um... You know, looking at the catalog here, he was only on four albums anyway, mm-hmm. you know, but as you said, I shouldn't say anyway. He was only, they only made four albums in 15 years with them. That's yeah. what I meant to say. <laughs> you know, that's ridiculous for that era. Especially, I'm going to be real again. This is Metallica. This isn't something, you know, extremely intricate to do. It is straightforward metal, and I know there's parts, and I know you got to do whatever else you got to do in the studio, but it doesn't take four years to make an album. I'm sorry, it doesn't. You know, especially that kind of music. I can make a, I can make an album like that every year. You know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not faster. Um, and I think most people that are musicians can very quickly. You know, so I, that, they kind of lost me on that as well. It's like, how can you take people at this level? That's your job. It's all you do is tour and... And, you know, I would imagine jam with each other during, uh, you know, sound checks and whatnot and, and bring stuff to the table. How could you not have more content, good content, quicker? You know, so I don't think that played any part of it either. And, of course, as we go from Injustice to the Metallica album, the Black album, that's the one that, you know, put them on, on the universal map across the friggin' world for everything. And that, to me, was that to me was the end. You know, I love that album, but I saw the end right there. You know, um, the commercial success, the heads got big, everything just kind of went right down the tubes for me with that band right there. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you get the Black Album, and, and I think one thing I liked about it was, you know, sonically it sounded good, but it also, it, it harkened back to kill them all where you had you know shorter a a lot more in your face kind of songs on there as well it was almost bizarre to me that all of a sudden everybody was into metallica it was one of these like what the fuck just happened moments well, you know, you just said the key, key kind of a key thing there. The, sh- the songs were a lot shorter, too, more in your face, which is great. They also introduced drop tuning to this album, you know, different tuning, I should say, a little bit half-step, whatever, and I think full-step on one of the songs. But, um, you know, it's a little bit different sounding there as well. But, you know, Enter Sandman was just a follow-up to one, and, you know, every band everywhere. I mean, I, was, I turned 21 that year, so I got into the nightclubs, and every, every cover band was playing Enter Sandman, you know, so... It was just, I mean, I get sick of hearing it real quick. And to this day, it's, it's probably why I don't listen to that album, because I don't want to hear that song anymore. And the rest of the album's good, you know? So yeah. I just got to get through that five and a half minutes of, oh, Christ, not this song again. <laughs> and it's nothing to do with that song, because that song was a good song. I'm just so sick of hearing it, you know? Um, but yeah, that they did that did go back to, uh, you know... Uh, the shorter songs, but I just knew that success and saw how they handled that success, and now their their head swelled huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, again, it took five years between albums. I thought that was part of the success of just you know, hey, maybe we can't do this again. We don't know how to do it, or maybe it was, hey, we made so much money, we're going to ride this out, or hey, we're cool, we can do anything. I have no idea what was going on in their heads, but you know, that was the five year gap that was just. Metallica and load that was just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, we know that there's a good almost two years worth of touring after release and stuff. You know, at least when you got that, the Black album, you actually got to hear Jason. And there were parts where, you know, he was very, very present on the songs and it started to sound like a a band again, which was good. And I do like that part of it that it's like, oh, great, I got to hear the guy and, and, you know, hear what he was thinking of and, and all of that. And I think 
it was unfortunate for him that he was in the middle of this huge audience changeover too, because there's definitely people that were like, Nope, I don't want to fucking listen to him anymore. They, you know, this sucks. I, the only yeah. albums are the ones before it and all that. So he lost a lot of people that probably when, if he had still been in flotsam, they would have freaking loved the guy. And then he had this whole new audience that he was dealing with as well. You know, again, the parallel to Flotsam, their their album after he left was No Place for Disgrace, and he had writing credits on at least two songs on that album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in that album, I, I thought, in 1980, he came out in 88, that album I thought kicked the shit out of Injustice for All. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so he left the band, went to a different band that was supposed to be better overall and, you know, more publicity, which it did have, but... I think I think his old band kicked the shit out of album to album. <laughs> I think I think his old band beat him, but um, that's just my opinion on that one. But uh, you know, going forward after that, I mean, yeah, I heard you hear him playing his parts on on the Metallica album. And gotta be honest, moving forward to Load and Reload, you know, you can you can kind of take both those albums together. And granted, they were one year apart, which means that all that content that is decided to put them out one year apart, you can make one good album out of those two albums in my opinion but each one individually leaves a little bit to be desired on each one of them that's my thought on those two yeah you know it's true it goes back to when you talk about the combining the albums and i always remember the joke you used to make about two of the latter Queensryche albums and and you even had your title and everything for being able to combine those into one good album and it just it still cracks me up to this day Oh, it was uh, 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 here in the Q2K tribe. Because right, I took those three albums and put them together and took the best songs of them. Got to be honest, though, uh, in all fairness, I've actually gone back and because of lack of great music these days, I've gone back and revisited some of those old albums that you know that were were fighting against fantastic albums at the time. So as a, as a older person going back listening to them now i've actually learned to like all three of those albums independently but at the time no you know i was looking for the the quick hit because the quick hits were coming out all over the place you know and uh but yeah that's a little uh rabbit hole in that one yeah. <laughs> you know? but, but you're right there I, it's you know there's even been a lot of like hey were these all recorded at the same time and is this like okay well you had your stuff for load and all the shit that wasn't good enough for load you put on reload or yeah i think there's a variety pack there which, again, I think people point to a lot of times, well, you know, Jason fucked them up and all this. But I think he, he was just all at that point along for the ride. You know, I, I've got a career here. I'm going to I'm going to do my best and, and play my best and go out there and, and kick ass live and stuff. But and at the same time, I think, you know, they were trying to do these other various like little extra like, oh, we're going to experiment with this or experiment with that. And then at the same time, if Jason wanted to go and, you know, hey, I want to go over here and do Echo Brain and do experiments, it was like, fuck, no, you can't do that. So I think, again, load and reload, they just they definitely didn't endear him long term to Metallica faithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you, uh, you're unpacking quite a few things here. And to, let's rewind one thing. Let's rewind uh, technology. OK, so back when, when they started in 83, whatever, 84, you know, making their albums in 83, they only had limited gear. They had limited money. They had, you know, they were using the same shit forever, and they made it work. And they pushed it to its extreme. And they they knew how to they knew how to make that stuff work. Now you start moving forward, you start making some money, and now the entire world's opening up to you. every every toy that's out there. And you know, I know from even borrowing your Zoom at one point, I must have I must have played with that forever. You know, mm. I mean, I still have my my standard Marshall and just the basic stuff I use with it. Had that one sound that I really like, but you start giving me toys and I'm going to tweak forever. I think Metallica kind of got at that point too. They had money they were buying new stuff. They, you know, tweaked their sound. They tweaked their gear. They had better opportunity to record stuff. The way things were done was different. Electronics were different. Mm -hmm. I think they might've got, you know, it lost a little bit. And and the fun of all that, it was fun. (laughs) It was fun playing with stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. To this day. Yeah. But you know, you, Again, that's where bands start losing their roots, you know, when you start losing that four-minute song, the straight-up rock and roll, get your solos in, get the riffing in, have your message and be done. That's what people, that's what works. Those are anthems. That works. And do a 10-minute song with 17 parts, and you think you're being cool. You're not. You know, you can be. I'm I'm not going to say you're not, but you you can be cool with it. But that's not what's expected from this band. You know, that's not, that's not what put them on the map. And I'm not saying they need to stay in that groove, but... 
when they stray too, when the band strays too far from a groove, it kind of gets a little awkward. And mm-hmm. I think the load and reload. I mean, I, honestly, I kind of liked a lot of the stuff on both of those. Um, I just kind of wish you were combined, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, and I've done that. I've I've made my load and reload albums, you know. So uh, taking off the ones that suck and putting the good ones on, and so I have a decent album out of the two. But shouldn't have to do that. That should have just been done for me, you know. My thought. Yeah, yeah, and I think at the same time. You know, there's, I think, a lot of stuff going on just with kind of, you know, you get the advent of social media, you have the whole Mm -hmm. Napster shit that went down and and all of that as well that kind of put another cloud over the band at that point, which, again, Jason inherited that that cloud as well. I think that further kind of Mm -hmm. skews people's view of of him. And then, you know, at the same time, at at the the tail end of that, you you actually have that... uh, the soundtrack um, song from the what the hell movie was that from? But the the I disappear and I thought that was actually a song that was like okay it, it to me it almost took like the best elements of what they were trying to do on load and reload and put that into this other kind of punchy song and, and I actually like that one. Um, I'm not even sure what song you're referring to. Which song is it? Was the song? It's the it's the Metallica one. They did that song I disappear. And it was it was I'm off. I think it's on a. Tom, I think it's from a Tom Cruise movie, if I remember. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. Um, I must have overlooked that again. Th- that was the era, the mid '90s. I just didn't. I was past Metallica when Load and Reload came out. That, like I said, that five year gap. They they really lost me. You know? Yeah. Um, and then when when Lars started being a little bitch about Napster. I mean, quite, honestly. If there's any person that should have been slapped around about bitching about Napster, it was him. Because back in 1982-83, he's begging people to you know, copy his tapes and give them to a friend so they can get signed. And pretty much Napster was exactly that, a way to copy things and you know and mm-hmm. distribute them. And I realized it was abuse, and I understand it was you know illegal. And I, I, I get all those concepts, but the same concept is still was still there of finding new music. And I found a lot of bands that, quote-unquote, I got for free one album, and I went out and bought the entire catalog. Bands like uh, 10 and um, whatever, I'm not going to name a whole bunch of but bands like, definitely, that was one of them I absolutely recall. I heard one of their albums, and I was like, oh my God, and I went out and I bought everything. You mm-hmm. know, So that's one example of how that worked out well. And I know it can be abused, and I know it was, and I know why they don't want the music to be given away. But that all being said, it pissed me off so much that when St. Anger came out, I put it up for free on my FTP site. Most people would download two or three songs and just stop. That's, I mean, <laughs> that's how... I guess I was saying either my FTP was too slow, which it wasn't the case, or they just didn't want to hear anymore. So, yeah, um, yeah for years I had it up there, my FTP site, and uh, it's long gone, of course. But Well, what's interesting, too, about that song is if you should go back and listen to it, because yeah, gonna- I think what you're going to find is that there's a lot of elements in that one song that are part of their kind of what I describe as kind of their new era of Metallica songwriting that starts with with Death Magnetic and it, and it's weird because you have that song with with some of that those elements in there and then of course you got Saint Anger stuck in there which is this clusterfuck and then then they kind of move back around again and um continue with you know it isn't like it's an exact thing you're going to find on on hardwired or or seventy two or but it's there's the elements and the kind of the overall feel it's like it's in that song it's weird yeah I'm looking at the I'm look at the video really quick here too um yeah I just don't I mean I'm just not recalling this song <laughs> I'm not gonna put it on because it'll bleed into yeah <laughs> into yeah just into just afterwards just check it out and and, yeah, and yeah. see but it's uh it, it's interesting um and that's kind of you know that's essentially Jason's final final shot there too for the band yeah but still looking kind of young i'm seeing the video here all right yeah yeah uh i don't know how that would slip to the cracks but it, it did you know i, I actually know it slipped to the cracks i was just kind of kind of don't metallica you know mm. um uh even even when they uh, came back when they made you know when uh well when rob joined the band i was unsure of that and his playing style was I won't say same as or similar to Cliffs, but it was definitely more aggressive than uh, Jason. So I was I was looking forward to it. Yeah, I think you know we can we can kind of move on to to Rob as well. That I think a lot of people embraced Rob because again he was a, a finger style bass player and and not with a pick, and so he was able I think to one faithfully 
do a lot of the cliff stuff that way. And you have a certain feel when you play with your fingers as opposed to a pick. And so he has that. But I think also coming from suicidal and you you have this certain other like groove that's in there as well. And and when you start to have songs that have groove, you tend to, as a bass player, dig in and you do kind of, you're, you have more accents and stuff and you definitely call attention to yourself. And so I think Rob brings that into the mix as well. I mean, obviously you don't hear him doing that when he's playing with Ozzy, but I think that Metallica actually gave him enough freedom to be able to bring some of those assets into the band. Well, the whole band changed, in my opinion. So let's take a quick look at Snapshot. So Rob's been in the band since around, what, 2003? 2003, yeah, like 21 years. It's crazy. 21 years he's been in the band, and they have three albums out since he's been (laughs) in the band. It took five years after getting on board to get an album out. I'm telling you right now, if I was in a band and we're making albums and, you know, we replaced the bassist, it would be a priority to get a new album out with that bassist playing or any musician in the Mm -hmm. band that was replaced just because we had priority to get them feeling part of the band. It took them five years to get him recorded and released, which was Death Magnetic. And to this day, of the three albums he's been on, I still think that's one of my favorite one of all the three. But again, you just said they gave him the ability to, to play, but the whole band changed how they play. The whole they recorded, just everything was just more bombastic um, to me. And... I kind of liked it, and I, you know, Death Magnetic, as I joked with us, this is the best album they've had in 30 years, because I was going back to Injustice for All at that point, you know, because <laughs> it was, it was uh, whatever it was, uh, 20, 20 years, I meant, uh, not 30, 20 years at that point, because they didn't make anything good in 20 years, in my opinion, you know, that, that good, I should say. So I did like Death Magnetic a lot. Uh, Hardwired, I thought, was, uh, was good as well, um, but... Uh, as we kind of alluded to on one of our previous episodes, we kind of went down a rabbit hole Metallica. 72 seasons, I mean, it's just missing riffing, you know? Mm-hmm. It's uh, missing, it has, it has chord riffs, but no, you know, single note, finger-picking kind of riffing. It's just missing that. It's way too long. These three albums are just, you know, ungodly long. Yeah, it, it's, I think it's that, but you know what else is interesting is that like death magnetic and i think you really hear it on hardwired and i haven't really invested myself enough into 72 seasons to fully call it on there as well but there's a a reliance again on like the base to really have that foundation for everything to build on you know lars is is a pretty straightforward drummer he's not going to be doing paradiddles and stuff anytime soon but I think you have Cliff that uh, Cliff that Rob that really puts that thing down, and then everything just gets layered on top of him. So it's it's very traditional structure, where I don't think that Jason would have ever been given like that much freedom across so many songs to do it. And but I think that part of in doing that that you maybe have really hit on it as far as the missing thing on seventy two seasons, where now there's so much reliance on doing that that. They've forgotten about all these other little kind of go in, go out, little single note lines and stuff to catch your ear and, and catching your head and stuff like that that become missing. And there's a little bit, I think, a little bit more complacency because he is that good. Um, taking his playing style and just, you know, how actually he is great. You're right. Taking all that play, taking the whole thing away. Bring it right back down again to technology. Technology is changing a way of you're no longer recording on tape. You know, you're recording on, it's all digital. Mm-hmm. You can literally cut and paste, move things around. I mean, you know, recently, as I mentioned to you, I, I got into electronic uh, music recording. I'm getting to that right now. So, you know, it's so easy to just cut, paste, maneuver, and, and undo something and redo something that I, I mean, just to me, they're, past few albums like cut and paste they really do like hey i like this part let's merge it with this part it's you know and, and i know i'm really belittling it but that's what it feels like to me mm-hmm. you know it feels like that it didn't jam as a band and, and just drive it out as a band it just feels like hey let's add as many as many change-ups as we can or whatever it just seems to be weird the first three songs on, on 72 seasons i swear to god they're the same exact tempo it just feels like one long song you know, and I, I'm I'm probably off by a little bit, but not much. You know, they're definitely <laughs> right about the same tempo. 
Yeah, so I, that, I, yeah, I don't think you're you know, wrong on that. And it's, yeah, uh, you know, and, and you're right. It is. It does get easy, and you can go. Okay, yeah, this is you know this is the verse part. This is the chorus part. And yeah, we're just gonna go ahead and and repeat those over. And, and yeah, digital recording absolutely gives you the ability to to do that all day long. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. It's just you can get lost in in over producing, over manufacturing, over manufacturing. You're over manufacturing a song, you know. And I hear that all the time in music I listen to. That's why I don't like. Uh, I've never liked power metal because everything is on the beat. There's no slop. There's no. There's no human feel to it. It feels so mechanical to me. I mean, sonically, it sounds fantastic, but it all sounds just, you know, I mean, there's there's no variation to anything in it. It's just straightforward. Everything is precise. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like power metal, but I, I get what you're saying, and I, I think probably what you like, too, is the fact that when you start to humanize a song and you don't have everything snapped to the grid, that little bit of difference actually adds to an element of aggression because part of aggression is, is like that that not knowing that spontaneity and all of that and I, I i think when you start to have that not solely based right to the grid you start to feel that in the music i go right back to you know even being in the band with you the, the way i loved being what i love doing in the band is jamming you know, that's how songs were made. You had some songs, you had stuff written down, you had parts, you know, uh, you know, you had lyrics written down, you had parts already worked out on guitar or whatever, and, you know, but you guys all had other pieces together. I brought something in. But the thing was, we all worked on it. Like, I'd play a riff, or you'd do something, or Jeff would do something, you know, or whatever. And, and next thing you know, boom, away we, Rick would do something, and away we go, you know. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that's, that's how... I, that's how I enjoyed the creating process. Sitting down, doing a guitar part, and then, you know, me doing the exact, a bass part, because I'm doing drums, you know, guitar and bass, and me doing MIDI drums or something. That's just one brain thinking one direction. That's not collaboration at all. And collaboration, I think, is, is the greatest growth of anything. You know, you throw something against the wall, and someone else expands on it, and that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that is my preferred way to to want to write as well it gets much harder when you're doing it by yourself and it it isn't as fun I just fun. don't hear that I just don't hear that in the Metallica albums you know and by the way going back to again Metallica didn't they acknowledge they made a mistake with Jason and when Rob came in the band didn't they you know make him a partner instead of a, a odd man out and didn't they give him a bonus or something too oh yeah they did and that's all in the movie too the, I think the like two million dollars or something to to, to do that and he was like what the hell and I don't know why that belonged in the, in the movie but um, yeah they did acknowledge that that, uh, you know, between grief and substance abuse and just kind of, you know, fortune, fame and being dicks and stuff that, yeah, they were really unfair. And and also I even, you know, um, James has even acknowledged even, you know, recently with interviews and stuff that, yeah, he should have just stopped being a dick and, and allowed Jason to go off and, and do stuff with Echo Brain and stuff and realize it has no bearing on on Metallica and it, and it fed, you know, a need that, that the guy had to do some other type of music. And uh, yeah, there's, there's been a lot more of like a going back and, and saying, Oh yeah, we, you know, we were kind of assholes. That's part of growing up. I can't fault anybody for that. I mean, I can look back at things. I call myself an asshole that I did in my life or, you know, thought I was being right at the time. And, you know, it's just human nature, I think, but um, it's just too bad it didn't work out beneficial to them, you know, mm -hmm. worked out in a bad way in some cases, so um, I definitely don't fault them as much for that. Um, you know, but going forward, they have the opportunity and ability, they're all millionaires, they're all, you know, have nothing but time to do this kind of stuff, and they can, any band at that level, can make a great album. It's a matter of, of just, you know... I guess figure out what's great to you know to them and to other people. So clearly they want to make what they're making. They think it, they think it's good, and I just don't share that vision with them anymore. You know, I don't share that that the direction they're going. I still like the shorter songs, more uh, more human feel to it, and a little bit of angst to it. You know, uh, that always catch, that always catches catches my ears. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I'm still, you know, I've gone to all the last tours, and and I'll go to the one this summer as well, and 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 I will say that the the bigger reaction is is for those older aggressive songs. Even even um, you know, you watch the the people that are there, and there's even like younger kids and stuff, and they're actually more apt to be into those 
older songs as well. And maybe part of it is the fact they know that their parents really love them or whatever. But I think that they really do have a much bigger reaction out of those shorter, faster, more aggressive songs. This also does break into the other thing. I know the other topic we were going to get into, which we may roll into right now, is how, um, well, maybe not, but how how um, sonically things have changed. Yeah, we're going to do that in a whole other episode. All right, that's, that's <laughs> fine. But, but just, just to touch base on it really, really quickly, and I don't mean to add a pun there, but just to touch base on it really, really quickly, you know, sonically these days, drums sound way better, and bass, everything's like just fatter, fatter. Back in the 80s, drums were sounding like, you know, a bass drum didn't sound like much of anything. Mm. So like somebody hit the pillow, you know, so, um, so you, having a bass guitar fill that gap was... was a little bit, uh, I guess, you know, more common, you know? So so I think that's the difference in recording techniques uh, from then to now and how that's changed, how we even perceive basses or just bass, bass in music in general. I mean, by bass, I mean low-end drums and bass, you mm-hmm. know, or anything, even keyboard, if you put in that, that as a layer somewhere deep. You know, it's just sonically we can, we can do a whole lot more these days. So that's definitely changed how everything's done. Yeah, 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 definitely. But we'll go too deep on that because I know that's a topic we want to get at. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a topic for a much longer discussion. But uh, but but for this one, I you know, I've, I said I think what's interesting, too, is why this one really appealed to me when you suggested it was that when you really start to go through it, that it's like the history of Metallica can almost be directly tied to their bass players. And people would think, oh, you know, what's a, you know, what's a bass player? But I, I think in this case, whether they're the loved bass player or the one that's the not loved bass player, I think their history parallels their changes in bass players. Um, yeah, it does appear that way. Um, I also, you know, I look at the first few albums as, well, how do you even say this, but with, with uh, um, Mustaine being in the mix and his influence, I mean, that influence was there for a while, and their feud kept both those bands, you know, rolling mm-hmm. against each other and in general. And to this day, I mean, I still think Mustaine, uh, you know, more riffing, the band's more consistent with putting stuff out, and whether you like him or not, as a person or even as a musician, that's a whole different story. But, you know, I think people that have contributed to Metallica over the years have push the band or nudge in one way or the other. Yeah, I think there's also the thing of, and I, I, I would say that actually even this podcast is a kind of a parallel of it, is that, you know, we first started this thing and it was this kind of hungry, let's get out there, let's, you know, really push the show and all that. And, and there's this there's this drive and there's a need and we and we had things where we were, I won't call it contractually obligated, but we were obligated to get a show out every week. And, and there was a lot of stuff that was driving to that. And now we're at this point where I could be that, yeah, you know what? I just don't feel like making an episode this week. And there's no, you know, I don't have a record label. I don't have Electra telling me, well, you owe us an album. You know, it's right. I've got black and recordings that I own and I can tell myself, well, you don't have to make an album for, for another five years. And and it's and so I think it's it's a little bit of, of a parallel there where here we are, you know, whatever, 13 years later, 14 years later that uh, it's like, no, I'm, I'm not I'm not putting a show out every week. And it's, uh, you know, this not this drive and aggression to do it all constantly and all that. I'm not doing an episode every five years, but, uh, you know, I think there's there's a similar thing there. And I think that you kind of touched on it a little bit, too, is I don't see them really probably jamming very much. I, I think everybody's off there doing their own shit and there's probably not a lot of, hey, let's get together and just just freaking play. It's probably get together to rehearse or get together to do some pre-production, but there probably isn't a lot of just, hey, let's just fucking go to the warehouse and just jam. Um, I, I just, I don't know, I can't envision it. Let's put it in the same parallel you just said. When we started, you know, when I jumped on board with this, I came on a tiny bit late. You guys already 
started rolling with the podcast, you know, and the hunger was there was to get out and get noticed, you know, and back then there weren't a lot of podcasts. Back then, if you had Cakewalk or something like that, Pro Tools, whatever it was, and could put this together, you know, you could do it, and the internet was still fairly young, younger, and blah, blah, blah. Now, fast forward, you know, we're, we're actually dinosaurs. We're doing it over the phone. People <laughs> do the same thing with your know, videos, you know, and video podcasts are everywhere. And so we're, we're that dinosaur in the tar pit right now talking about this. So, but again, we're not as hungry as you mentioned, because, you know, you've already had the success. You've already had 500 and what, 80, 90 episodes at this point, 85 episodes, whatever it is. I mean, that's, you know, nothing to sneeze at. But again, I still think, I just like to find the roots. I want to go back to the crushed metals. I like to get some songs put in here. You know, um, I, I would still love to get back to that stuff that made it, fun, you know, those different segments within within the, uh, at least fun for me, those different segments within the the episodes, and quite honestly, it'd be great to get feedback from people who listen to this and have listened to it, and you probably get it, I don't, you know, I'd like to hear what these people say, what they like for a format, what they like to hear, what topics they, they enjoy, which also brings up that, we've killed every topic worth talking about within reason, you know, I mean, <laughs> Five hundred eighty episodes. What else is left to talk about? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm making fun. I'm sure you can always find something, but you know, everything's not new like it was. Uh, you know, we've kind of been there, and I still enjoy it. I still think it's fun. Now, with more more nostalgia at this point, talking about things, you know, how things have changed over the years, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a different landscape change too, because I mean, when we started this. Like you said, there weren't a lot of podcasts out there. We're probably one of the longest running ones at this point. But now, and, and you got to also remember that when we started this, if you were to tell somebody you were doing a podcast, almost everybody mm-hmm. gave you this look like a what? Uh, yeah. it, it really wasn't part of the of the vernacular. And now it's, you've got, you know, major, you know, entertainers and people are are doing podcasts and whether they're audio or they're visual or they're both or and and so it's kind of a normal media thing. And I think also what you get is where before where there weren't a lot, you would have listeners that would pretty much every week they were listening, they were responding you were kind of part of their weekly life. And now there's so much out there that they probably look at stuff and, and you're going to obviously have listeners that listen every week regardless. And, you know, we're available on, you know, over 40 different platforms at this point that I know of. Every one of those platforms has a shitload of shows. But I think you also see is there's going to be people that, are going to only go and listen to a topic if they're interested in it, as opposed to, right. you know, always being religious about watching it or listening to it every week. And I think you're going to have people that, you know, they listen for a while and then whatever, they they find something else that they prefer. And there's only so many hours in a week that people want to listen to shows. It's free and it's not like, uh, you know, you're obligated or whatever. So I think you also, there's just so much that, uh, yeah, it, it's like the tide, you know? I, I agree. And, you know, over, everything's oversaturated these days. And the fact that even some listeners are listening or however many we have, it's fantastic, you know? And I think it's, I think it's fun. But, you know, I can actually bring something up. So we did an episode recently, two episodes. You broke them into two parts because it got long-winded. Did you purposely stop the episode when I was talking about how you had to flip a cassette from side A to side B because you kind of stopped right after that and called that, you know, part one, in essence, part A, side A, and then you did the second part of the episode the next week, which would have been side B. Did you do that on purpose? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> that was kind of funny. <laughs> I listened back to it. I was like, you should be. That was funny. Yeah, I, you know, this, sometimes you you try to find this pause or whatever, and that one was a, Oh, I can't pass this up. So because yeah. uh. as I was getting towards the end of it, I was like, "Wouldn't it be funny if Scott ended it right here after after you know we talk about side A and side B? You have to get up and flip it, and you did." I was like, "Oh my god, that was so funny!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, every so often I hit something, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, this is the five bases of Metallica. So one of which is never really heard from, one of which I wish I never heard from, and the other three are <laughs> all in the mix. So, <laughs> Awesome. Wow. We, and we got this done in um, just 
just under an hour. Well, that's the mandate, right? We, I mean, I'm trying to be a little more cautious about the rabbit holes because, you know, we start talking and I start running. So. Yeah, that's half the fun. Yeah, I All know. right. Well, it's great to talk to you about about this one. I know we've been, you know, binging back and forth a cup for, you know, a couple of weeks on it now. And uh, it's, yeah, I'm glad that uh, we've got it in the can. Yeah, that'll be nice. Looking forward to hearing it out there, hearing it in the wild. Yep. See, told you that was going to be a long one. And, you know, when you start to listen to Jay and I talk as well, if you weren't one of the listeners way back when we started this show and you would hear Jay and I every other week, you really don't know kind of where our split was on metal. And I think, you know, as the weeks go by and, and there's some more appearances by Jay, I think you might kind of get where he ties in and out and how he differs from Richie and myself and I will say that Jay is the guy that originated the phrase that you've heard often on the show here, when a singer leaves a band, I'm done. So he is pretty much that OG band kind of guy. So hearing how he's discussing the three bassists in Metallica, knowing also that pretty much he's, you know, makes it uh, no secret of where he really was disappointed in the band. Uh, this is, you know, ends up being a pretty good conversation. So I hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. And as always, thank you very much for continuing to listen to Focus on Metal. Can't believe that, you know, we're approaching 600 episodes at this point. People still tuning in and the show continues to grow. And that's really a, a tribute to those of you out there listening and supporting the show. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So, for Jay, Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great Metal Week. And until we talk to you again next time, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.